Thank you very much, Mark. It's a great privilege to be with you all in this part of Donegal. We're going to come to the letter to the Hebrews, which in many ways is unique in its approach to the Christian faith in the New Testament. And we're going to begin with a short section in Hebrews chapter 1 and then moving to Hebrews chapter 2. You notice how in chapter 1 uh, the writer speaks of the exaltation of Jesus, his, his deity, if you like. Chapter 2, his humiliation, uh, his humanity. So let's uh, look at chapter 1 and verse 1. This is God's word. In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And we leave off uh, there and come to chapter 2, and beginning at verse 9. So that's Jesus exalted. But, says the writer, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author or the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, verse 10 of chapter 2, is well, let, let me read one more verse. Chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers... We share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And we'll end there. But I want particularly to focus on verse 10 and bringing many sons to glory. It was fitting that God for whom and through whom all things exist should make the pioneer or the author of salvation perfect through suffering. Let's take a moment to pray. This is a very dense couple of chapters. It's very hard to take in even when you read it, never mind when, when you're just listening. But we'll try to pick out the main picture in this passage and I hope it will be helpful to us. Let's pray before we do. Father, we pray that you would graciously send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher so that your word would once again do what you have appointed it to do. May it give light to the eyes and refresh the soul 
and rejoice the heart. For your great name's sake. Amen. Now, I don't know anybody here at all. I've, I know Mark a little bit. We have, we have met over the years, but I don't know anybody else at all. So I don't know anybody's story. But I can be certain that all of us find at times it's hard to keep going in the Christian life. There's so much to discourage, isn't there? There's so much to discourage sometimes in our own lives because of our personal failures. Uh, there's a lot to discourage in the church at large because the church, I'm not referring to this particular church family, but the church in general uh, seems to be going through a hard time, and it, particularly in an increasingly secular society. And, and then sometimes there are deeply personal things like prayers that we have offered to God again and again, and there seems to be no answer as yet forthcoming. And those things can daunt us in our Christian faith and discourage us, and we may even at times feel like drawing back or we, we, lose, we lose impetus, we lose steam in the Christian life. Now, that's the great theme of the letter to the Hebrews because these Jewish believers were deeply discouraged. And I will not go into it quite now why, why they were. Well, maybe tomorrow we'll talk about that. But the, the writer of this epistle likens the Christian life to a long-distance race or maybe a pilgrimage. And the great idea is that you keep on going, you keep on going. Uh, and the whole, the whole epistle is written as an antidote to discouragement. Now, what is the antidote to discouragement? Well, before I come to what the letter says, I, I'm always reminded of an occasion. I, I had an occasion to be invited out to friends in America, in Atlanta, in Georgia. And the gentleman who used to come down to Kilkenny, Mark, an American gentleman, he wanted to take me, uh, it was probably a five-hour journey by car to Jackson, Mississippi, where there's the Reformed Seminary. And I was supposed to say something to the students about the work of the gospel in Ireland. But my little son came, he was probably about five at the time, and he was very keen on Tom Sawyer. And you know all the stories of Tom Sawyer and the Mississippi River and Huckleberry Finn and so on. And he was dead keen to come because he wanted to see the Mississippi River. And we drove for four or five hours. And when we got to Jackson, Mississippi, to our great disappointment, I think the Mississippi was another further hour on down the road. And we didn't have time to make it. So we never did see the Mississippi, though I was told it's not worth seeing. It's just a big, dirty river like any other one. That was one thing I remembered. But the other thing I remembered was going into the student area where the, they have a chapel there and a, a very very tall pulpit and I was sitting in the pulpit being introduced by one of the staff and I saw written on the the front of the pulpit in a little plaque these words it said sir these words of course come from John's gospel sir we would like to see Jesus and I was just very struck by those words because that was there as a reminder to people who preach what they need to preach about and what congregations need uh, to hear about, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Indeed, that's what the writer to the Hebrews here says in chapter 3, verse 1. He said, fix your thoughts on Jesus. So in a nutshell, the, dis the antidote to discouragement in the Christian life is to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Again, he says in chapter 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And so you'll discover that the letter to the Hebrews is a portrait gallery of Jesus. Picture after picture of Jesus. And when we get discouraged, we need to fix our eyes upon him. And I, I want to, over these three sessions together, focus on three different picture, pictures in this portrait gallery. First of all, tonight, Jesus as the pioneer of our salvation. That's in chapter 2, verse 10. And it's also, by the way, the pioneer of our faith in chapter 12. Uh, secondly, as the priest that we confess. We'll come to that, God willing, tomorrow. And then on Sunday, the perfecter of our faith. But let's, tonight, come to this great picture 
of Jesus as the pioneer of our salvation and the pioneer of our faith. Now, uh, we have some young people among us and it's, it's lovely to have you and I hope I'm not going to be too boring for you. But we know what a pioneer is, don't we? A pioneer, the other word for it in the dictionary is a trailblazer. Somebody who blazes a trail. Somebody who goes ahead, for example, the first person to climb Mount Everest. You've probably seen on the news this week the sad news of people who were lost in Everest, including, I think, two Irish. Two Irish men have been lost in the last couple of weeks. But the amazing thing is to see Everest crowded with people. But way back when I was young, I still remember hearing about Sherpa Tensing and Edmund and Hillary, the first two to pioneer that journey to reach the summit of Everest. And if you like, they blazed the trail so that others could follow. And I, I think of other pioneers uh, associated with Ireland, uh, some from Ulster, let me mention them first, and then some from deeper south. Uh, way back in the 16th century, for example, when Ulster Presbyterians in particular were suffering persecution for their faith in this part of the world, many left these shores, including here from Donegal, headed to the new world that today we call America, and there they landed on the east coast and they blazed a trail inward, uh, in, inland, uh, and into the areas around Kentucky and Missouri and so on and to, to build a home. And they opened up a trail so that others could follow. And it meant cutting their way through thick forest and travelling over very dangerous swamps and facing attacks by Native American Indians and by wild animals. And many died of frostbite and cold and so on. But they, they were pioneers. They blazed the trail. They went ahead and they opened up a route that others could follow. And we'll come back to that picture in a moment. But the second uh, pioneer that I, I love the story of Edward Shackleton, who came from County Kildare. And during the period it turned out to be the outbreak of the First World War, Shackleton, with I think 27 men, uh, went on a pioneering journey to the Antarctic. And his idea was to cross the Antarctic on foot to be the first to do it. But uh, you may know the story. Uh, disaster struck. Their boat was crushed by ice uh, and sank with almost all their equipment on board, including their radio equipment. So they were stuck in the Antarctic. The, second, or the First World War had broken out and nobody was particularly interested any longer in Shackleton because there were other bigger things in people's minds. They had 27 men there and they had no way of contacting the outside world. They were completely lost and it looked like they would die alone in the Antarctic. And for several months they lived uh, on the ice, uh, eating seaweed and whale meat, or, or, or seal meat rather, and it was a hopeless case. And then what happened was Shackleton decided he would take uh, five of the men and he would go, they, they had two lifeboats surviving, so uh, 22 of the men, or 20, 20, whatever it is, five from 27, 22 is not right, uh, 22 of them <coughs> remained living under this upturned uh, lifeboat and he took five of them including a man called Tom Crean from County Kerry uh, Tralida in that way and they headed out across the most treacherous ocean in the world the Antarctic Ocean and it was the worst winter in living memory there were mountainous waves and fierce storms again they suffered frostbite and thirst uh, and intense hunger and they had to travel 800 miles across that ocean 800 miles on a little open boat in the worst winter in living memory, to find a little island called South Georgia, which was really only a needle in a haystack. 
Uh, they were on Elephant Island, but they had to find South Georgia because there was a whaling station there, and they knew there would be a radio and they could contact the outside world. And they had no, they had no compass, so Tom Crane from County Kerry had to use the stars to find this needle in a haystack. And by some miracle, they, they made it to South Georgia. And then they had another problem. They had to climb up a 4,500-foot mountain covered with ice. They had no snow boots. They had no climbing equipment. And incident, it was something that had never been done before. But these five men who were suffering hunger and thirst and frostbite somehow made it up. Then they had 27 miles across the top and down the other side to the whaling station. Back in Elephant Island, the 22 men left knew they were doomed. There was no chance that, uh, Ed, uh, that Shacklin would come back. They were certain that he, he had meant to come back, but they knew he would never make it. But routinely, every day, they would send somebody down to the beach just to look out to see his watch, but there was no boat. One month, two months, three months, four months, five months. And then one day, somebody shouted down at the beach, there's a boat in sight. And Shackleton had got to that uh, whaling station, he had got to the radio, he had got a boat from South America and they brought it to him and he came back and all 27 men were saved. An amazing story of courage and self-sacrifice to save those who were otherwise doomed. And if you take those two pictures together, blazing a trail open that others can follow and going on an immensely risky and dangerous journey of self-sacrifice that others could be saved. Put those two pictures together and you'll realise there, whatever about these amazing journeys, uh, no pioneering journey can compare with the journey of our Lord Jesus Christ that is mentioned here uh, in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 as the pioneer or the trailblazer of our salvation. Let's just, for the next few moments, think of that journey that he made. Uh, think first of all of where the journey started, where he came from. And that's what chapter 1 is all about. The writer cannot find the words to, to describe the beauty and the, the splendor and the glory uh, from which Christ came. Notice how he speaks of him, the sustainer of creation, the radiance of the Father's glory, and the place of highest honor at the Father's right hand, the object of angels' worship. And Christian poets have tried to put it into into poetry to describe it here's a, a, a one song thou art the everlasting word the father's only son god manifestly seen and heard and heaven's beloved one worthy old lamb of god art thou that every knee to thee should buy here's one who came from the most exalted place now let me ask you this question what could be more glorious than to be the object of heaven's worship well surely it's what we read about in chapter two that this object of angels' worship, the Son of God, should set aside his glory and come into this world for us. Because that's what chapter 2 is all about. It, it moves from where he came from to where he came to. It moves from his exaltation to his humiliation. It moves from his deity to his humanity. And notice, uh, perhaps I can put it for simplicity, that if we can say the journey was in four stages, one might say. Of course, not exactly like this, but just for simplicity. First of all, he entered into our humanity. That's what verse 14 tells us. He was not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Now, if you think of the worst family that you know, uh, how would you like to be suddenly launched into that family and become one of them? Think of the worst family in Letter Kenny, who are known for trouble and drinking and fighting and all sorts of things, and say, you're going to become part of that family. Well, 
magnify that. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the object of heaven's glory, was not ashamed. He was not embarrassed to join our family, to call people like us his brothers and his sisters. And not only that, he came to a low-income family when he was born, when it came to his dedication on the eighth day, his mum and dad couldn't afford a lamb. They had to bring a pigeon. That was for a poor family. He came from a really bad family tree. If you read Matthew's Gospel, the genealogy, there were adultery, there was murder, there was prostitution. That was the family tree he entered into. And he was an asylum seeker at his birth. He had to flee to Egypt as a child. And he grew up with brothers and sisters and presumably all the same squabbles as you get in every family with uh, peer pressure and family tensions. He lived with all of those sorts of things. And he grew up in what one might call a bit of a dump called Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's what people said. There was something about Nazareth that meant it didn't have a good reputation. And as you read through the New Testament, you discover that he ate and he drank and he laughed and he was sad and he was angry and he was hungry and he was thirsty and he got frustrated just like the rest of us. He became one of us. He entered into every emotion that you and I feel. And he was a working class man. He worked with his hands. He was a carpenter. He probably had to work with pretty tiresome customers at times, but he lived in a little humdrum village doing the job of a working class man. And he told lovely stories of local life. He just lived in ordinary village life. You know the stories he tells of patches and trousers and Yeast is mum baking and losing things around the house and children playing games in the streets and the self-righteous clergy and that harsh judge who was, uh, you, you know, the, the guy that people feared when they went to the local circuit court and the fishermen down at the, at the sea cleaning their nets and the, the lads out in the field ploughing and so on and sowing their seed. That, that was all part of his life. He came right into our world. Somebody put it in a little poem like this. He spoke of grass and wind and sea, of fig trees and fair weather. He made it his delight to bring heaven and earth together. And he was homeless. He never had a home. He had nowhere to lay his head, we're told. He slept rough or he stayed in digs with his friends. And he became the friends of the most unlikely people, outcasts and paramilitaries, and prostitutes and rough-tongued swearing fishermen. They became his friends and he became their mate, if you like. And he gave women a, a place in society which they did not have. He, uh, so many of his friends were women that were drawn to him and he treated them with dignity as, as little children were drawn to him as well and sat on his knee. And he was witty. Remember the stories he told? You know, there's one, something like this. You imagine being in a, in a, a restaurant or a cafe and uh, there's somebody and the, the fellow in the next table notices there's a fly in a soup and he's going to point it out but as he's pointing it out he hasn't noticed there's a camel sitting in his own plate that's, that's what Jesus said here's somebody who can't see the big thing in his own the big wrong thing in his own life he's pointing out the fault in somebody else so he used witty stories to, to make his point and he didn't mince his words either he, talked to, he called the leaders of the, the church blind leaders and whitewashed tombs and some of them hated his guts for it. He entered right into our world. Every emotion, everything that you and I feel, he understood. He entered into it. He became one of us. There was no experience of life that he did not enter into. But secondly, more briefly, he entered into our temptations as well. That's what we're told in verse 18. He was tempted in every point, just like us. He led aside his immunity to temptation. He was tempted to doubt his father. 
He was tempted to disobey his father. He was tempted to turn back when the going got tough. And we can be certain he faced satanic attacks far more intense than anything that you and I ever face. But thirdly, he not only entered our humanity and then entered our temptations, but he also entered our sufferings. Chapter 2, verse 10. Our emotional sufferings, for starters, let down by his friends, misrepresented by those who accused him. He faced physical abuse. He was flogged, crucified. As you know, crucifixion was invented by the Romans to extract maximum pain from its victims. But above all, there was the spiritual suffering, those dark hours when he struggled desperately. We, we may think that he had divine power to face these things, but we're told in the, in the following chapter, he cried out with loud tears. He cried out in agony as he struggled with the temptation and what lay before him. And then we're told in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he became sin for us. That, that means he became the sinner in God's eyes. He became the rapist. He became the child abuser. He became the murderer, the, the, the lustful person, the greedy person, the liar. He became those things in our place. He took on himself every vile sin of the human race and he became guilty on our behalf. And that's why as he stood before his accusers, he didn't open his mouth because he, he couldn't defend himself. He was guilty for us because he took on our sin. And then he was utterly forsaken seen by the Father. Father, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utterly forsaken. Said, God did not answer his prayer. He was left in complete darkness. So he entered our humanity, he entered our temptations, and he entered right into our sufferings. And finally he entered our death. Verse 9, he tasted death for everyone. The prince of life was dead. The sustainer of the universe wrapped in cloth, in a tomb. And why did he do it? Verse 10 tells us, it was fitting that the pioneer or the trailblazer of our faith was made perfect through suffering. What does it mean that he was made perfect? Well, of course he was perfect, wasn't he, to begin with. But in another sense, he, he was not perfect. It really means that he had to be proved fit. For example, when a young person uh, goes for driving lessons, uh, the reason they're going for driving lessons, the test is not to try and catch them out, but it's to prove their fitness to drive on the road. Isn't that right? And when the devil tempts us, he tempts us to bring us down. But when God tests us or tested Jesus, it was to prove his fitness for the role that he had come to, to take on, to represent us on the cross and then in heaven. And so Jesus had to face every test and prove his fitness. And he was the only one of whom it could be said. He was tempted or tested in every point like us, yet without sin. He passed the test flying colours. He proved his fitness to represent us as the true man on the cross and then in heaven. Such was that amazing pioneering, trailblazing journey that Jesus made as the pioneer of our faith. So let's finish off by asking so what, one might say, what, what are the implications for us? Let me just suggest two or three things to finish off. First of all, what did his journey achieve? First of all, it achieved, he opened up, says Hebrews 10, a new and living way of access to God. As Marcus pointed out, I, I come from Northern Ireland, my accent gives me away, 
from around the Larne area, County Antrim area. And at around the age of 37, I moved south. And I've pretty well been there for 34 years or something like that. So my family still live up around Larne. So I was travelling up and down the road in the old days before they had the Newry Bypass. You had to go through Newry and you've got to go through RD. You've got to go through all the little towns on the way down. It took an age to get to Kilkenny. It took about five or six hours in those days. It's only half that time now. But I often think particularly of around Newry. Uh, the road around Newry wasn't great. You had got it through Newry and the traffic was terrible. It was really deadly slow. But then, and, and just beside Newry, there's a huge lump of rock, if you like. And they decided to create a Newry bypass. And engineers came along and they blasted a way through that rock. And they opened up a new way, if you like, uh, from the north through to Dundalk, where I now work, on down to Drogheda and, and so on. If you like, they blasted open a new way of access. Now, it's not a perfect picture, of course, but one might think of the, the, the huge rock of our sin, the thing that separated us from God. Jesus blasted through it and opened up, says the writer, a new and living way uh, of access to God. Notice how he puts it. Uh, later in this uh, epistle, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and full assurance. The things that blocked us from God, he blasted them out of the way. He opened up the new and living way. And that's why you and I can come directly to God and have access to him in prayer. But he not only blasted open that route home to heaven, but he, we're told in chapter 2, verse 1, he did so that he would bring with him many sons and daughters to glory. His purpose in coming was to not only open up the route, but to bring us with him and, and to bring us on that route home to heaven. I remember some years ago, I, I happen to like uh, very cultured things like motorbike racing. And uh, I've always used to watch the Ulster Grand Prix in the Northwest 200 and as a child, every motorbike race we would go to it. And when my brother was 70 a few years back, I thought as a present, it was really a present for me, but I didn't tell him that, <laughs> that I would pay his way and we would go over to see the Dutch TT in Assen in Holland. It was the only race on a Saturday, so it meant I could get back for Sunday morning to be down in, in Drogheda. And I still remember we went to the race, we enjoyed the race, and coming back to Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, I was a bit confused. I had a hire car, we hired a car at the airport, and I didn't know how to get back to where I'd hired the car. And there seemed to be about 30 lanes. Or, well, that's what it seemed like to me. Maybe a lot of lanes anyway. And I didn't know which one do I go. And I was drifting around, wondering. And I saw this police car coming up beside me. At whatever it says for police in Dutch, I can't remember. But it looked very much like a police. And this policeman got out, a really grumpy guy. And he said something very grumpily to me in Dutch. I didn't know what he was saying, but I knew it wasn't pleasant. And I said to him, look, I'm Irish. Don't speak Dutch. I'm trying to find my way back to the car hire place. And he just turned, walked away without a smile, got into his car and drove off. But in the back of his car, a sign flashed up in English. Follow me. And he drove ahead. And I followed, we followed him and he drove led us to the, where the car hire place and then he drove off. It wasn't much good for the tourist industry. He wasn't a particularly friendly guy. <laughs> but he helped me. He said, follow me. And Now, that's not a great example, is it, when I'm coming to the Lord Jesus Christ? But here's what he's saying. I have blazed open that trail home to God. Now you follow me on that route. He's bringing 
Many sons and daughters home to glory. That's the road you and I are travelling, following him home on the road that he has already opened up and the way home to the Father. But here's the third thing. Not only has he opened up that route, and not only does he want to bring home many sons and daughters to glory, but in his own life he shows us how to travel on that journey. He's the pioneer of our faith. He shows us how to live that life of faith on the journey. Let me just again give two or three examples before we stop. First of all, he demonstrates for us the nature of what the Bible calls true holiness. Now, holiness is a kind of a word we don't use very much today. We're told to strive for the holiness without which no man will see the Lord. We're called to a life of holiness. But what on earth does holiness actually mean? Well, notice what it says in chapter 2, verse 11. The one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are from the same family. He came and joined us to show what a real human being is meant to be like. Now, here's a question for you. Was Jesus a real human? I remember being, after I finished my work in the Ministry of Agriculture, so when I ended up going into theological college in Belfast, and I have to confess, many of the lectures were fairly boring, and I used to sit with a book under my book, reading not the book I was supposed to be reading, but the book that I enjoyed reading, because the, some of the classes were really exceedingly boring. But I remember one guy who was a particularly boring professor, and he was a particularly poor teacher. He was a good man, but couldn't communicate what he was saying. But I'll always remember one answer he gave I'll never forget. The guy beside me, a fellow called David, he thought he would stir up the class a bit just to waken everybody up, because we were sitting there, you know, at the lecture. And he said, sir, he said, I don't think that Jesus could have been a real human like us, because he never felt shame like us. He never sinned. We sinned. He never had to repent like we have to repent. He never had to feel remorse like we feel. So he couldn't have been a real human because he didn't experience everything we have experienced. What do you think? And I still remember what the professor said. He says not only was Jesus Christ a true human, he was the only true human. He said you and I are subhuman. We're all marred human beings. He is the true human being. We don't assess his humanity by comparing him with us. We assess our humanity by comparing us with him. I thought it was a good answer. But what strikes me is that our Lord, for 30 years of his life, worked no miracle, preached no sermons, had no public ministry. He was just a carpenter in a local village among ordinary folk. And it was after those 30 years in that ordinary humdrum life that the father looked down and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Just living out a life of faith in the ordinary nitty-gritty of life, the father could say, I'm really pleased with my son. Now, would it not be a great thing if the father could look down on you or me on the farm or in the business or at the kitchen sink or changing the baby's nappy or working in the hospital, whatever it may be, and say, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, and I'm really pleased with them. They're not preaching sermons, they're not working miracles, they're just living out a life of faith in the nitty-gritty of life. They're being the person they were meant to be. And here's what strikes me about Jesus' humanity. The more we become like Jesus, the more human we become. And the more human we become, the more we become ourselves. To be holy is to be the person God made you to be. To live out your life. We're all different from each other. We've all different personalities. 
But God made you to be a human being, and the more you become like him, the more you become yourself, the true self that he made you to be. The nature of true holiness, just to be the human being God made you to be, to be his person, uh, your personality and your circumstances, living out the life of faith in the ordinary nitty-gritty of life. Notice, by the way, that he had no special resources that we, that we don't have. Even though he was a son of God, he had to live by faith. He had to trust when he couldn't see the way ahead. Uh, he defeated temptation because he learned to obey when it was easier to disobey. And he persevered when it was tempting to turn back, just like we feel. He went through all the same as us. But by faith, he obeyed the Father in the nitty-gritty of life. And the Father could say, this is my beloved son. I'm really pleased with him. May God say that about us as well. Here's the second thing. He demonstrates also for us in his humanity the, the, the compassionate heart of God. Uh, I don't know if you watched the Football World Cup three or four years ago. It was in Brazil, mainly around Rio. And every night on the TV, if you were watching it, there was that sign of the, you know, the great big statue looking down over Rio called the Christ of Porcovado. Huge big statue looking down on what are called the favelas or the slums, where I think nearly a million people live. It's a drug-infested, horrible horrible place to live. Children die literally just of starvation, lying sometimes in the rubbish tips. Other children looking for for bits of food and bits of pizza out of bins. It's a horrible, horrible place. And the story's told of a teenager who lived down in the favelas. And he was looking up every day at this Christ of Corcovado in this big statue. And one day he climbed up the, I think it was 2,000 feet or whatever it is, up that mountain, and he shouted into the face of that statue, Christ of Corcovado, if you want us to believe in God, why don't you come down and live where we do? Come down among us. And of course the Christ of Corcovado didn't move. But what is the writer of the Hebrews telling us? The real Christ came right down. Right down to our world. He came right down among us. He entered our struggles. He became one of us. There's a man called Edward Shillito who lost his faith during the First World War. He saw the carnage of so many lives lost and he, he couldn't go with it. He, he tried to find his faith. He looked at Buddhism, he looked at Hinduism, he looked at Islam, he looked at the face of the world. But he tells how he was drawn back to this lonely figure hanging on a cross. And he wrote a poem, it's called Jesus of the Scars. This is one verse. He says, the other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you did stumble to your throne. And to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but you alone. He has wounds. The God, the, 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 the one who represents us in heaven, has wounds. He feels the hurts. He feels the pains that we feel. He became one of us. That's the, the heart of God, if you like, the compassionate heart of God being shown in the place of Jesus. And so the writer says, therefore come to a throne of grace to one who sympathizes with us in our struggles. Jesus shows us the nature of true holiness and he shows us the compassionate heart of God. But finally, and only in a sentence or two, he also shows us the nature of true Christian mission. Because notice again what it says, he was not ashamed to call us his brothers. He wasn't ashamed or embarrassed to mix with the wrong sort of people. He didn't stand aloof. The Pharisees, remember, they were the very holy people, the very religious people, and they didn't want to get contaminated by mixing with those ordinary folks, those, those embarrassing people. 
And in fact, those people wouldn't have gone near them anyway because they were completely unattractive. But isn't this an amazing thing? The only sinless man who ever lived was attractive to sinners. There was something about him drew them. He didn't condemn them and push them down, but he lifted them up and he gave them hope. There was something about Jesus that drew sinners to him. And someone has said this about our churches. If we're not attracting the kind of people that Jesus attracted, then perhaps we're not the kind of church he intends us to be. Luke 15 puts it this way. Jesus was there. The Pharisees muttered in their hearts, this man's eating and drinking with sinners. But, it says, the sinners and the publicans drew near. There was something about Jesus that attracted sinners. He gave them hope. He didn't push them down. And that's what the Christian church is meant to do. So let me me finish. We're finished now, but let me just sum up. The theme we've been thinking about tonight is of Jesus, the pioneer of our faith and our salvation, the one who blazed a trail and opened up the way home to God, and the one who calls us to follow him on that road, bringing home many sons and daughters to glory, but also the one who shows us how to travel on that road, how to be truly human, how to attract others on that journey with us. And to so live a life in our ordinary nitty-gritty experience that the Father can look down and say, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, and I'm really pleased with them. And above all, says the writer, fix your thoughts on Jesus. That's the antidote to discouragement. Let's take a moment to pray, and then, Mark, we hand back to you. Father, we don't all know each other tonight. We don't know the struggles that the person next to us is going through. Uh, We all struggle in our faith. We struggle, Lord, with our own Christian life. We struggle with the state of the church. We struggle at times with the world around us and the temptations and the allurement of the world. And at times, Father, we get tired in the Christian faith and we're perhaps even tempted to slacken off or maybe even to turn back. But, Lord, we thank you that you're not a God who's remote and distant from us. But you've come right down from the glory of heaven into our world. You've become one of us. In the person of Jesus, you have blazed that trail home to heaven and you've shown us us how to travel on that route. Father, we simply ask tonight that we will be enabled afresh to fix our eyes upon Jesus and to so live in our daily lives that you can say of us, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter. And with them, I am really pleased. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen.